the show, Vanessa, from the top this time? What do you mean? I'm already recording. I'm ready to go. No, no. Actually, start the show. Hi, Vanessa. Oh, hi, Don. <laughs> I don't understand. We, this is always what we do in the intro. I can't do it with Yasha present. It's too weird. Uh, so, right. <laughs> Maybe we should. This is this is going to save me editing time. Oh, and my God. What's better than save Adam editing time? We have Yasha Monk with us, and we have him literally with us, because we're not re- pre-recording this intro, because I just truly see no reason. Is this an honor or punishment? I'm not sure. I'm not either. <laughs> we'll, well, see. we'll see how it turns out. Well, first of all, why can't it be both? In certain cultures, the honor is to be eaten. So I was in a Satanist podcast a little while ago, and I was a little apprehensive about it. I was expecting that kind of thing. It was a very thoughtful, interesting interview with a really great guy. Um, but but I guess I should have been prepared for cannibalism <laughs> on this podcast, all right? I know. Well, it's uncertain things. So you never know what you're going to get, apparently. Hey, <laughs> hey, I was hey, hey. your intro. Uh, I will shut up until you introduce me. So our, our guest has... Uh, you may have may surmised. Have yes. Uh, <laughs> is Yasha Monk joining us again. We Last time you were here, we were talking about the challenge of structuring a liberal, diverse democracy. And I, I think this, is, this was one of our most enjoyable conversations. And you, dear listener, should definitely go back to this because the, the thorniness that uh, Yasha was unpacking in his previous book on what constitutes a diverse democracy, why it's important, and... Why they're difficult and, to maintain. And why they're difficult to maintain, and was the, and especially the difficult part was the heart of the conversation, is it was splendidly done in the book, and the conversation, you know, started the, uh, our whole tangent, our whole since-to-be since tangent about the the secret sauce of oppression as as a glue for society, um, which I still haven't figured out what I personally think about. But um, we are here to discuss, argue about your new book, which is The Identity Trap, um, a story of ideas and power in our time. To give it a quick primer before we dive in, it, and tell me, actually tell me if I'm, I'm doing this wrong, but I see your mission in this book as bringing together all the theoretical underpinning of the current identitarian mess that we are living through, on the left specifically. You observe this phenomenon that that has been um, given many names throughout the past 10, 20 years, and you try to put it into one theoretical framework, seeing it as the identity synthesis. And you go back to see how the theoretical under the theoretical currents of postmodernism have evolved into what we have today, but also how changes in media and technology in politics have shaped it into something very, very different from what the original theoretical authors of what might be considered the theoretical progenitors of this movement have intended. Why, as a current political movement, it's self-contradictory and bound to fail or at least to self-destruct and why the real answer is, as we always like, um, rediscovering liberal democracy. Did I, did I 
give a, a fair primer. You, 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 you summarize the whole book. I'm going to send you on book two instead of me. No, that's, 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 uh, I think that's a great primer. So before asking the first question, uh, this intro done, first question is coming. I promise you, you'll get to talk to in this podcast. But um, I just wanted to put in a small rant in advance so you'll understand where I come, I'm coming from. I'm, this is the, uh, the, a very minor, stupid uh, shoulder chip that I have with this entire conversation in the U.S. I have this um, personal grudge of the guy who's been writing about this bullshit for, for um, almost 15 years. And I, when I started writing about this, and, and when I say bullshit, to be fair, I, I really love the theoretical underpinnings. I loved looking at to see how the theoretical work from the 60s has evolved, how Foucault got, got misread and all that. And we're going to talk about all this and how this evolved from a really weird marginal movement into something that is actually shaping uh, uh, at least half of the country, if not the entirety of our current political state. And I, I still remember the scorn um, of, of colleagues um, and scoffs back 12, 15 years ago when I was trying to write about this as, but what's the point? You are dealing with the fringes of the fringe. Where there's, no, there's no value in looking at this point except for them being interesting. And I said like, well, even if, if so, it's interesting, right? I don't know if it's going to shape anything in the real world. And now I see these like, wonderful books being, like, <laughs> being put together to look, looking at my, the, the framework that I was like, trying to trace. And I'm like, eh, what have I done with my life? Like, <laughs> I, should have, I, should have just, I should have just waited. I should have just like, not... <laughs> Expended energy. So just to be clear, I come from a very personal grudge of the fact that you get to do this and not me. So that's <laughs> now that we have put, got this out of the way, my first question, and we'll probably get to this um, later. I, I really want to know um, your um, Yasha Monk is a political theorist, um, author of many books, writer for The Atlantic and founder of Persuasion. Who and I mean this sincerely, who are you trying to persuade with this book? Yeah. Um, well, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a few different audiences that I'm trying to persuade, right? Uh, one is that uh, I think there's generally a lot of people who are attracted to elements of what I call the identity synthesis, or what you know, more broadly is called wokeness, which is a term that is you know, not very helpful for various reasons, because they are genuinely you know, morally outraged by the deep injustices in American history and the history of many other democracies and who are therefore deeply pulled to an ideology which claims of itself that it, it alone is the recipe for how, in a radical, uncompromising way, to get over those kinds of injustices. And at the same time, I think a lot of people see that the way in which this ideology is playing out in our public sphere and is being applied in many of our institutions and many of the institutions of which we're part of in a kind of progressive milieu just doesn't seem to be going so great. Right? I think of a friend of mine who was really skeptical when I used to criticize some of these ideas and who I saw again after the pandemic and who said, look, I now get what you've been talking about because the very progressive organization that, that I work in just tore itself apart over the course of the pandemic in a way that I find troubling. And so, you know, I think one audience that I'm trying to reach is people who feel the real pull of some of these ideas, but also have over the last year started to think something isn't quite right. And so to them, I'm trying to explain 
you know, the work that you've done as well. What is this ideology? Where does it actually come from? How is it playing out? And why is it wrong to think of the critique of this as a form of what I call notofarism, right? Why the right framework is not to say these are the right ideas, it's just some 19-year-olds take it a little bit too far, you know. And 19-year-olds always take things a little bit too far. No, this is actually a deep challenge to the basic values of liberal democracy. Um, you know, these ideas, and some of them are very smart and sophisticated in the origins, less smart and sophisticated in the way they tend to play out on Twitter. Um, but from the inception, they have fundamentally rejected one of the political traditions that I most value and admire in the United States, that of black liberals, from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King Jr. to Barack Obama. They explicitly reject that tradition as standing, you know, diametrically in opposition to what they want. So that's one audience. The other audience I want to reach is people who, in a sense, are already on board with being skeptical of left identitarianism, who are, you know, are, are fully on board with whatever you want to call it, the vaguely heterodox political space or what used to be called the intellectual dark web uh, and so on, but who are only getting offerings at the moment from people who are uh, quite polemical, who don't understand the tradition and who sometimes are really actually deeply reactionary, right? Uh, people like Ron DeSantis and all of his kind of intellectual supporters. And so I worry that the understandable uh, disagreement with and sometimes even anger over uh, the way in which these ideas are playing out is tempting people into a form of political reaction, which is going to be just as destructive for the country. And by the way, get people like Donald Trump, who are continue to be very worried about reelected as, as president. And so I think I also want to improve the kinds of arguments that those people who already buy into the critique of quote-unquote wokeness um, uh, make, uh, and to make sure that they see that there is a way of opposing these ideas while staying within the realm of philosophical liberalism, within the realm of the values of a constitutional republic, within the values of somebody who, who values in many ways the diversity of our society, who values in deep ways the kinds of freedom uh, that, that it allows for us. It's interesting, Yasha, because you kind of described essentially audience one is me. <laughs> I'm the person on the left who has historically been motivated by injustice. And it's kind of been a threat through line in the, the journalism that I've done throughout my career. Uh, I I want to buy in to a lot of what's happening on the left. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a thinking human and I do see issues and problems. And so I, like you said, have these hesitations, right? On the other side, we have a Dom who's kind of audience member too, uh, for, to the, to a large extent. And it's interesting because I think part of the reason why we started this podcast in the first place was because I was kind of steeped in, in the ideology of the left and mostly buying in and not really questioning it too much. Adam was irate in the other side of the house, constantly getting upset about things happening. And it was kind of like a, let me understand what's making you so upset. Let me understand like what I think are the positive aspects of what's happening. Um, and, and the other thing, actually one of the founding questions of the podcast for us was why does liberal democracy matter? Because I had not been steeped in that in my education. And so I didn't, I, a lot of the first episodes were just me just trying to come to grasp with why has liberal democracy so far been the, 
best functioning system to allow for diversity and di- or diverse societies. And do, 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 do you realize how interesting what you just said that is about the the state of Amer- the the basic like the normy American left that you can say something like I was steeped in the tradition of the left and by which you don't mean Marxism you mean bit normy liberal left uh justice equality minded liberal and yet you didn't have a sense of why liberal democracy the system that actually facilitated its growth and flourishing and, yeah. and hegemonic impact on the world is valuable why it's important and it's weird because i had an, a humanities education in america so caveat but I did read some some important philosophers, but for some reason, the message of liberal, like why liberal democracy matters, didn't quite stick with me the way that the critical theorists did. And I think this will. <laughs> but anyway, and, just just and, noting and, this. And, Go ahead. And, and, and I don't think that's atypical, right? So mm-hmm. one of the things I'm struck by is not just that we don't teach civics enough in our middle and high schools at the moment, but there's sort of two modes of teaching, and one that's really very conservative and doesn't really touch much on on, on fair criticisms of. Of American history and so on. But then the other, which skips, you know, what is the Constitution and why is it valuable and what are the basic principles of liberal democracy to go immediately to here's how to protest, here's how to be an activist, right? Um, and I found that even, you know, I taught parts of a book this summer to, uh, to, to some, you know, undergrads at an Ivy League university. And the kids are all right, you know, I mean, the, the, the starting assumptions are far more identitarian or far more quote-unquote woke than minor, but the, the, the great majority of students are very open to having real discussion and real debate on these subjects, and they're really grateful to have serious conversations about these things that otherwise is just assumed in the, the university education in many corners, especially in the kind of administrative trainings they get. But I was really struck by one smart student when we when we had a week on, on free speech, which is one of the chapters in the book, sort of saying, wow, you know, I'd never really thought about that, like why free speech might be valuable and that if you don't have free speech, I guess somebody has to make decisions about, you know, what's censored and what's not. And those people might not always have the best sort of values at heart, you know, and really she's a smart student. I know I'm making her sound sort of naive and so on. She's a smart student, but that is just a simple, basic idea that she had not encountered in her education up until that point. And that's that's really striking to me. Yeah, it's, it's funny how those things can sometimes be, even if when you're thinking about this a lot, some of it can be invisible or you haven't framed it in the right way. I, I had this moment when we were talking in our previous episode with James Kerchak and he, what was it that he said? Find Notice the correlation between what countries have had progress for the LGBT movement around the world and which countries don't have free speech. And it's like that that relationship is so revealing. Like all the countries that still are troglodytes when it comes to LGBT are invariably awful when it comes to speech rights. And that's, that tells you a ton. The one of the things I'm really struck by in, in, in the States is first of all, just how fundamentally the basic assumptions of the left have transformed. Because to be on the left in the United States in the 1960s was to admire the free speech movement at Berkeley and other places. And even though obviously there's always been left-wing movements that didn't exactly value free speech, if you look at a place like the Soviet Union or other communist regimes, um, 
you know, the sort of left within Western democracies had always been defenders of free speech. You know, again, uh, going back to, to, to one American political tradition, Frederick Douglass rightly called uh, free speech the dread of tyrants. Because when the left was not in power, it understood in an obvious and natural way that free speech was what allowed it to rail against the powerful, what allowed it to rail against the powerful interests that wanted to um, uh, keep slavery going, who wanted to uh, maintain Jim Crow and, and so on and so forth. And I think the fact that today there's this sort of bottom line assumption that free speech is somehow a right-wing value, something that's happened in the last 10 years, shows just how radically our public sphere has transformed. But it also shows sort of how naive some of these ideas are, right? I can understand that if you're completely uh, politically socialized at you know, a fancy university in which the overwhelming majority of faculty and the even more overwhelming majority of administrators are very far left, you might come to the idea that a speech code or, you know, punishments for people saying things that are considered offensive is somehow going to enshrine progressive values and protect us against troglodytes or whatever, right? But the idea that this is going to be the case at scale um, when it's the federal government or when it's uh, uh, big tech companies that make that decision, uh, it, it, it's just tremendously naive. And it's only possible because of how untested uh, these ideas have been in the last years. This, this connection between naivete, I think, and intentionality is is kind of interesting. I think I don't want to I don't want to get into it right now, but I want to tease it up for later. So go ahead. And I'm... To conclude on the uh, potential audience, the there's a whole conversation that I don't think we, we can get to because they want to start start getting to the stages of your book and even talk a little bit about Foucault. But the other audience, the, the people who are, call it woke skeptic, writing to them in order to try to de-radicalize them from turning to DeSantis is another interesting thing that's happening in our culture. And I think another part of the mo- motivations in this podcast But to me, the idea that somebody who reviles the left because of its illiberalism and then turns to uh, DeSantis or at the extremes of Viktor Orban, I I am not convinced that these people can be reached by uh, recontextualizing of the history of these ideas. Because I think that once you've made that switch in your head, you've in the same way that on the left, once you've made that switch in your head to rebel, that liberalism is the problem, because what I'm interested in is results and not necessarily the underlying values, the shared values. Basically, you've broken away from a liberal conception of, of pluralism into uh, I want my faction to go to it at once. It's I'm not sure how you go back from there on on either side. I, I'm also keen to get into the substance of the book, but but very briefly, um, look, somebody like Ibu Patel, who you should have on the podcast, by the way, great uh, sort of interfaith organizer, Muslim-American, um, he talks really movingly about how uh, when he went to college, some of these ideas helped to make sense of his experience as a child of Indian immigrants in the Midwest. And he was really attracted to these ideas and he really was gripped by them. Um but then a series of experiences made him realize that it was turning him to an overly negative, overly critical person, somebody who could tear stuff down but never build up. And 
and and and and he really changed how he thinks about these things now he talks for example about how he has two teenage sons who are muslim and how he gets angry that his stu- his teachers encourage him to share about their identity but only in a perspective of victimhood only in the perspective of you know how is it hard and terrible to be muslim in america today and he says, look that's part of it they have experienced some amount of, um, you know, unpleasant comments or whatever. But that's not what their identity is, right? Like what my religious identity is, is not here's how we're terribly persecuted. It's here's what we believe and what we're proud in, right? So I do think that people can very significantly change their point of view uh, over time. And, and the other thing I'll say is that, um, you know, in all the debates about how do you persuade Donald Trump voters, I think there's always this kind of, uh, wrong-headed attempt to be like, how do you take the like most MAGA guy and make him vote, you know, for Joe no, no, Biden yeah, but, or Elizabeth but, but Warren? But I'm and talking that's not going to happen, right? No, no, no. Wait, I'm talking about the guy that you're thinking about, the guy who started off as just a woke skeptic feeling. That and, and Vanessa and I both have a specific person in mind <laughs> who would feel so beleaguered by what's going on on his own side, feel isolated, feel lonely, but that loneliness then turns into a turbulence of anger and resentment that ultimately can push people to DeSantis' world. And then the joy, their own personal joy in life becomes seeing DeSantis enacting the most illiberal laws thinkable, just as long as it punches in the right direction, they're fine with it. But but I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't know that that's the guy I'm trying to persuade, or perhaps I'm Mm. trying to persuade that guy five years ago. Right. right. And there are still lots of people like that. And so reaching them is really important. I mean, in a completely different context, that was always my, my, my thinking about Jordan Peterson, that, you know, his success was sort of our thought, our and the sort of broader, I guess, center left or center right or whatever kind of sense, right? Which is that nobody was giving guidance to young men who don't come from families that impart them with a lot of guidance, who don't come from privileged backgrounds. And 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 he was, and you know, I think especially his recent revolution, it makes it very clear that he wasn't the right person to give that guidance. Um, but that's in part on us because somebody should have given them that guidance. And I do think that that would have um, saved people from being drawn into that kind of sphere. Mm-hmm. And I do think that part of what has to happen on the left is some kind some kind of education actually because i feel like there's so much ignorance i hear so much from friends like capitalism or whatever it is like tear it all down with no real understanding of what that would entail or what the repercussions would be and i feel like there has to be some element of our education where we are we are taught about the benefits and uh, disadvantages of our existing systems and the ways you can reform the systems, or if you and if you are going to tear them down, then give me a good uh, give me a good uh, alternative because anarchy doesn't sound so hot. To me. Actually, that's a great segue because <laughs> w- the ignorance is so pervasive that it's it applies also to their own uh, credo often and. Yeah. Which brings us to Foucault. Which actually I could could also say applies to me because like I've like we had a whole conversation with Jamie Kirchick in our previous episode about the because I I often will use the word queer and he gave us a whole kind of like intellectual background of like where how to situate that word and where it comes from and these are things like oh I had no idea and I, you know I don't know if it necessarily changed my mind if I'm going to stop using that word but it was it was good for me to understand where it comes from so yes to Foucault which uh, to be fair some ig- ignorance is fine but you, you you need to choose either your ignorant and politically kind of passive or that you are really politically engaged and then do some homework. Um, 
but Foucault. Foucault is like the 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 Bible of a lot of this this political postmodernism. And um, we we had an interview with one of my professors, my one of my favorite professors, Moshe Sluchowski. Um, we bonded deeply over Foucault as a, as a tool to give you an alternative read of history. The his book about madness and and sexuality is they're just actual fantastic reads. Sometimes. Difficult because of his French prose, but really interesting in terms of thinking that, oh, that our, the way we see the world, the way we act in the world as people is through languages. We are creatures of discourse. And when we label things differently or when we uh, delineate the world in different ways, it leads to different power relations and different understandings of, of who is in control and who is the authority to dictate how to think about the world. But the Foucaultian principle is not, or the Foucaultian idea is not a prescriptive one. It's descriptive and very pessimistic rather than missionary. I'm giving you my thoughts on Foucault. <laughs> Take it away if you want. Well, let, let, let me explain why we're talking about Foucault first, perhaps. So, um, you know, one of the, so, so, so my book has sort of four parts, right? So the first part is really doing what in a way I, I, I was trained to do. I studied intellectual history um, as an undergrad and for, 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 for part of my PhD, um, so in a way, it's sort of a return home. And so the first part of the book simply says, look, where, where do these ideas that have become so influential actually come from in their more sophisticated version? The set of ideas that became really influential on American and other college campuses by about 2010, what are they, where do they come from? The second and had part you, of the book had you grappled with those um, kind of theorists before in your own education? I assume somewhat. Is this, was this the first time you kind of dove deeply into them or what was your relationship yeah, with them? I mean, I, I, I'd read Foucault, of course. I'd, 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 I'd read some articles by Kimberly Crenshaw and, uh, and Derek Bell. I'd, 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 I'd read some Edward Said. I'd read Les Spielberg um, and, and, you know, other people, obviously, in their kind of wheelhouse and so on. I spent sort of a year in Paris trying to understand Derrida and some other people. And I'm not sure I ever quite... Did, but I'm not sure anybody else ever quite did either. But, um, uh, but certainly I sort of, you know, for this project went back and really did my tour of duty. You know, I mean, I really read the, the, these sources in a focused way in order to understand this intellectual history, in, you know, in a way that went beyond the general education I had. So, okay, in the second part of the book, I'm asking, all right, so how do we go from the set of ideas that is super influential in universities in 2010, but as Adam was saying in the intro, like really marginal to society as a whole. And Kimberly Crenshaw herself writes an article for the 30th anniversary of critical race theory saying, well, great, we have this wonderful research program that, that, that's been more successful than we thought. But obviously it's not going to have any influence on society as a whole. So depressingly, that's beyond our reach. And that's turned out to be wrong over the next 10 years. Why? How come? Right? I mean, the third part of the book is really thinking about uh, and critically assessing from a philosophical perspective the main applications of these ideas to areas from a standpoint theory to cultural appropriation to free speech to uh, what I'm calling progressive separatism in education to race sensitive public policy and other topics besides. And then the fourth part really makes a defense of philosophical liberalism, explains how philosophical liberals can respond to the fundamental critiques lobbed at them from within the identitarian uh, tradition and uh, why liberalism is valuable. Um, so, so to go back to part one, you know, uh, when you read most of the accounts that are now coming out about the intellectual origins of these ideas, and there still aren't really people trained in intellectual history who who who've done this. 
um, they broadly argue that it's a form of cultural Marxism, right? I mean, this is Chris Rufo's term for it, for example. By the way, don't, 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 don't trigger me. Don't trigger me. That's the, my, my point about the 12 years, 12, 15 years. It's 12, 15 years of taking it from the intellectual history. So, right. so you're, lo- you're looking me in the eyes and telling me, no, nobody successful has done it. <laughs> Uh, well, I, you know, we, 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 we need your book on this next. I don't, I don't think one exclusive. No, 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 no. I've, I've, I see to uh, obscurity. <laughs> but also truly, like, like I said, the, the, the great thing about this book is that I kept looking for moments that I can snob and say, ah, you missed this detail. Like, no, you got the nuances. But your point about Chris Rufo, yeah, people who come from intellectual history and see how Chris Rufo would say, oh, these are just children of Foucault. It's like... Man. He sort of, well, he partially says John Foucault, but he partially just says it's sort of like, you just take a sort of straightforward orthodox Marxist in like 1920 or something, and you take out the element of class and you put in the element yeah, of, identity. of different identity categories, and that's what, you know, what you get. There's some structural similarities between Marxism and the identity synthesis, and they're basically owed to the fact that both of them are responses to liberalism, and some of the core claims of each of the traditions are responses to liberalism, and that's where the structural similarity comes from. So I think of them as sort of, um, you know, in the same way in which wings of birds and wings of butterflies have have structural similarities, um, even though uh, they're not, in fact, descended from each other. There's some structural similarities between Marxism and the identity synthesis, but they're not because they're descended from each other. So why Foucault? Well, because actually in, in my story, and I take it you, you agree with that, these ideas do root and start with, originate in some important sense from the postmodernist tradition. And in particular, from the idea present in Foucault, but also obviously in other postmodernist and later post-structuralist thinkers um, in, in, in France and beyond, that we should be very skeptical about uh, the possibility of certain forms of objective truth, and we should be particularly skeptical of grand narratives of history. Now, what's a grand narrative of history? Well, some of them are liberal grand narratives of history, right? That the world used to be terrible and oppressive, and um, because of our lovely universal principles, now it's uh, just and good. Um, uh, that's a grand narrative that Foucault is very skeptical of, but also the Marxist grand narrative, right? Foucault himself becomes a member of the French Communist Party, which is really steered by Moscow in 1950, but he starts to chafe against it very deeply. He hates it. And by 1953, he leaves it. And from from that point onward, he is a bête noire of the communist intellectuals like Jean-Paul Sartre, who continue to dominate French intellectual life. And so his rejection of the sort of Marxist uh, idea of history and the coming revolution and all of the sort of basic categories of that is really a, the profound starting point of his thought. So that's why that's why my, 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 my intellectual history starts with Foucault. As you've anticipated, and we can talk through the different moves of how that happens, I think that the way in which Foucault is now uh, invoked and used, what became of his ideas is something that he himself would probably be quite horrified by. He passed away a little bit too early for us to say that with absolute certainty, but I think that if you understand his work with subtlety, you can both see how it provided some of the intellectual foundations for the identity synthesis and how sort of by turns people move away from key parts of it in such a way that 
uh, they actually realized some of Foucault's greatest nightmares. So one of the famous images from Foucault's work um, is the idea of the panopticon, uh, originally suggested by um, James Mill, uh, in which, you know, a prison guard can look into all of the cells of the different prisoners because, you know, he's sort of positioned in a watchtower in the middle of a prison and all of the other uh, cells are sort of arranged around him in a panopticon. And so the prison, uh, the, the prisoner might sometimes be punished if he does something illegal, but most of the time he doesn't have to be punished because never knowing when he might be being watched, he in an act of anticipatory obedience is going to self-discipline uh, in order to um, make sure that he evades that kind of detection and punishment. You know, when you look at some of the ways, especially a few years ago, that sort of the, 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 the height of the policing culture, of what people might think and say or even like on social media has led to sort of all kinds of witch hunts and so on, I think that is actually, uh, you know, a modern-day realization of that kind of panopticon, and I think Foucault would have, would have hated it profoundly. And I want to I want to scroll back. I think the interesting thing about Foucault and what is seen both by um, shallow critics on the right and by some of the shallow practitioners on the left as the reason why Foucault has wrought our current uh, 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 obsession with subjectivity is because he dismantled the idea of of power existing in in a fundamental I don't want to say objective but in, in any ob- language independent way because, you know his part is is in the moment of uh, deconstructionism and all these literary theories so he's thinking very deeply on from the angle of language but I think his version of it is one of the more persuasive arguments is that Everything we understand in the world in human relations is perceived through a a linguistic mediator. And the lines that we draw to separate power relations are the way we understand our place in the world and our relation within societal hierarchies. And that is either very profound or very obvious. In the profound sense, that's something that cannot change. This This is the creatures that we are. We will always see certain lines drawn in certain ways and people will always be separated in certain uh, separated in certain ways and which means that there will always be certain power relations in those systems you can only replace or change who ends up being the authority that gets to say what's sane and what's not sane what's within the circle and what's outside the circle but ultimately you don't get to be in a world where those distinctions are completely eradicated and then you have the shallow version of it which is well, if everything is just a product of language, everything is uh, construction, then we can completely reimagine the world based on our inner experience, and then you get shallow subjectivity. But I think this, this line of understanding that there, there is deep, meaningful thought in postmodernism that is worth engaging, that is worth thinking about, and that is worth using to challenge some of, of, of our own assumptions and, and, and used to think about the status quo in critical ways, even to use more leftist terms, to be able to identify where there are injustices that we might be blind to at the current moment. It's a very useful tool and shouldn't be tossed away just because the children of Foucault are morons. 
uh, who've probably never really engaged with Foucault in a serious way. And also Foucault is a very flawed person. Like, we don't need to put him on a pedestal either. But the question is, how do we slide from a place where this really profound ideas that can get academics excited and can, can write many essays uh, arguing about the nuances of how to apply this as a theory and where he gets things right or where he gets things wrong and how, how, how nonsensical some of his historical assumptions are to a place where this kind of becomes a new theological or at least teleological um, foundation for some of the most powerful activists in one of the most powerful countries in the world. Right? This is an like this is a their their operating system now in in its shallow form. How do we make this pivot? Yeah, so so that's sort of what I try to answer in the book. First, at the intellectual sort of level, and then the more popularized and the vulgarized level, right? Um, but but the first sort of set of moves is that there's these two things that I agree with you can be valuable in in Foucault, uh, which become really attractive to various people fighting against injustices, uh, but also become an obstacle to them, right? And so the first is this idea of power really being structured by discourses, right? So when you ask somebody, um, you know, a high schooler, a smart high schooler, you know, what's political power? They all say, well, there's a president or a prime minister and there's an army and there's laws and they exercise political power. And perhaps we have some control over them in a democracy, right? But basically the power travels from the top down. There's a state that tells you what to do and perhaps we have some control over the state as well. Um, but, but that's really the realm in which power inheres. For somebody like Foucault, that is certainly true, but it's sort of not the most profound way of thinking about power. Really, the way that we exercise power is through these political and other kinds of cultural discourses. Um, and so even this podcast is a form of exercise of power. We're exercising power over each other in the kind of way we frame and talk about things. And really, when you're thinking about uh, forms of oppression, you should be really attuned to ways in which these kinds of discourses might be oppressive, right? And I think that's certainly plausible. Um, certainly there's, there's a truth to this. Um, the second key point in Foucault is about identity, right? I mean, Foucault is what we in our language today would call gay or homosexual, um, but, uh, but Foucault himself thought that there was too constraining a label, that there was a way of trying to categorize and label uh, you know, human sexuality, though, is in many ways misleading, but it was actually quite a modern invention, according to him. And this was the starting point for him to be deeply skeptical of identity categories in general, right? He thought that it was unhelpful to think about the world in terms of those categories because they always reduced people to some kind of imagined essence um, that they might not, in fact, have, that they might not share, that they might not define themselves by, right? And so uh, after the starting point, I think the next important move that helps to make up the identity synthesis is the reception of these postmodernist ideas by the postcolonial tradition um, and by two figures in particular. The first is Edward Said, who uses Foucault's form of discourse critique in order to say, hey, uh, historically, the West has exercised all of this power over the quote-unquote Orient. And they've done that in part by justifying uh, their rule, by saying there's something about the oriental mind, which means that it's immature, that it's in need of governing from enlightened westerners or whatever, right? 
Um, and so uh, here we see a very political use at a large scale of a kind of discourse that Foucault was talking about. In a more basic way, even the the very my point about the power gets to draw the lines to delineate what constitutes as what the invention of the East. That what the fact that right. the West had the power to say this thing is the East. It's one model things of floating identities that are all in that one soup uh, of 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 exoticism that we see as the East. And by the way, what, what, what basically is your modern equivalent of that? And, and, and perhaps we'll come back to that. Asian-American. Right. Said gets worked up rightly about the idea that somehow in this Western conception, China and India is basically the same thing. It's all part of the East. Well, today, Asian-Americans, you know, like where we stand from, from India or from China, or let alone from, you know, Sichuan as opposed to Hunan or from, um, you know, Bengal as opposed to Rajasthan, all the same thing, all Asian-American under the same kind of label. So you see how actually Foucault has the you know, some of the interesting tools for critiquing some of the things that, that I get worked up about today in the United States. But, but Said says, look, this discourse critique is helpful for, for pointing that out. And, and I think it's absolutely right. And Said um, uh, cites favorably Foucault throughout Orientalism. He's the first thinker he cites favorably. He's one of the only ones he cites favorably. <laughs> yeah. He does so repeatedly, right? But afterwards, he starts to become more critical of Foucault, because he does start to have his reading of Foucault as being very quietist, as saying, look, there's no real change you can make. You know, all you can do is disrupt a discourse and then it'll reconstitute in a different way and it'll be just as oppressive as it was before. And so Said and his followers say, no, the point of his discourse critique is political change and power, right? Why are we complaining about Orientalism? Because we think that once you have criticized these kind of discourses, that gives the resources to people who have been Orientalized to fight back against this. And that's going to help us, you know, fight colonialism and post-colonization and neo-colonial attitudes and, and so on and so forth. This is a plausible thought and it becomes just to say lay a seed it becomes one of the key moves that right. you then see in a vulgarized popularized version today where what is it to be a good feminist it's not to fight for certain legal changes and so on it might be that too but it's to praise or critique or debate the barbie movie and the way in which it constructs gender norms in our society you can see how this sort of politicized version of a discourse uh, critique becomes a key part of the synthesis that, that we lead up to. So I, I think that this moment or this pivot that you've described, specifically the Saidian pivot, and then you get more of this with uh, Crenshaw and Derek Bell, is, is I can almost see it in front of me, even though they're clearly not my generation, because I've seen that in students or contemporary students that I, I, I that were with me learning Foucault at university because Foucault if you read him seriously as I mentioned before is is, is sorry is descriptive not prescriptive and and that leads to a deep pessimism about the human condition but that's so unsatisfying when you are in you know, in your twenties, and you're eager to change the world, and you, and, and especially if you are, if you have something in your own personal biography, like Said, that you see as a, a great social injustice that has been inflicted on you. Um, um, but even if not, even if you're just surrounded by injustice or or attuned to it, but especially I think if you have something in your um, personal biography to draw on, 
and you feel like no should this is I, this i can't let that lead me to passivity i see the power in this idea and i see how this is is letting me see certain things more clearly but surely I can then turn this around or tune it into something that will let me change the status quo or, or at least upturn it. Yeah, and here I think it's not just a matter of being able to, to, to value Foucault while being critical of what became of his ideas, but also some of the people who make the subsequent moves but get us closer to the stuff that I think is problematic, they have their own sort of profound reasons too. And I certainly think that Said saying, well, look, I mean, Foucault gave us this great sort of uh, tool of 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 critiquing the discourse, and then he's and then he's going to go and you know say we shouldn't fight for political changes. No, we should fight. That's a perfectly reasonable thought. The the, the other one, which uh, uh, is a little bit more self contradictory, which I struggle with a little bit more, but which in its, in, in its sort of uh, motivation is understandable too, is Gayatri Spivak, the other important sort of post colonial uh, uh, scholar who makes a key move, who's saying, look. You know, Foucault, and in this case, uh, I believe it was Gilles Deleuze, have this exchange in the 1970s in a French intellectual magazine where they say, look, you know, the Marxists always want to speak for the workers and for the people, right? Um, uh, but precisely because we're quite concerned about these essentialist accounts of identity and so on, it's not clear that that makes sense. How can we speak for French workers or something like that? So it's time for workers to speak for themselves, right? It's time for intellectuals to give up on this idea of being the avant-garde in that kind of way. And I think that's a very appealing thought, but Spivak says, look, I'm, I, I'm from Kolkata, right? I, I grew up in one of the poorest parts of India. She's at this point a, a professor at Columbia University. Um, but, you know, some worker in Paris who, who had, you know, a French Republican education and is literate and, you know, has food to eat and a television and all of those things, he might be able to speak for himself. But the people who I'm most concerned with, um, uh, you know, in Kolkata, they may not be able to speak for themselves. They just don't have the same standing, the same resources, the same educational access and so on. And so she says the subaltern, as she calls them, can't speak for themselves. And it is the job of, of, of intellectuals to speak for them. But if you're going to speak for them, you need identity categories. And so how do you do that? She basically buys at some level Foucault's skepticism about identity categories. But she says, for political purposes, we need them. And so she comes up with a strange idea, a very influential idea of strategic essentialism, where we acknowledge at some theoretical level that the essentialist account of identity is wrong, is, 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 is misguided. Uh, but then say that for political purposes, we have to act as though these essentialist accounts were true or, or, or were right. Um, uh, because that's what it's going to take to motivate and organize people to fight their oppression. And again, you can see the, the, the seeds of how people think about this in much more vulgar ways today, where they say, look, um, race is just a social construct. Of course, we don't believe it in any way. But for all intents and purposes, we're going to act 
as though it was the supremely most important thing. And not only that, but what it is to have a progressive education is to encourage people to lean into and embrace the racial identity. We're going to go into classrooms of six or seven-year-olds, as many of the most elite private schools in the United States now do, and separate the kids into a black group, into a quote-unquote brown group, into an Asian-American group, into a white group, and tell them, including the whites, to lean into their racial identity, to embrace the racial identity, because that is needed on a sort of strategic essentialist account in order for minority, you know, minority groups to fight against injustice and majority groups to sort of become good anti-racist to atone of their uh, white privilege. I think that's a really misguided idea and perhaps we'll get to that, but it comes again from a kind of instinct in Spivak, which is, which is understandable. What do you call it? Strategic uh, essentialism? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I call strategic essentialism. I do yeah. think that this term is worth unpacking, actually. Yes. Because I think it's something that a lot of people on the left don't realize that, I, I will put myself in this, that we are doing. We don't realize that we are essentializing individuals as part of their background. So actually I think I think Yasha it would it would be nice if you could kind of unpack what what is what what it means to be maybe unwittingly essentialist today. Yeah, yeah let, let, let's just take it even a step forward backward. Explain essentialism. Mm-hmm. Maybe give us more examples of how this plays out in in addition to the neo-segregationist movement. Yeah, so essentialism Uh, is the idea that the kind of group categories we use are defined by some kind of objective essence, right? So the, 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 the clearest example and the most concerning example is racial essentialism, right? There is something essential that makes somebody uh, black, that makes somebody Aryan, that makes somebody a member of, you know, whichever racial group. Um, and the particular account of what that essence is, is going to vary between different uh, uh, thinkers or theorists. But it does suggest that, uh, you know, there's an objective validity to the idea of race, which explains why we should think of you as black and you as Aryan and, you know, you as uh, a non-Aryan or, you know, what, what, whatever other categories are within this particular scheme. And of course, um, one historical reason to be concerned about that is that this is the set of ideas that has been used by, by outer races to theorize, you know, some pseudoscience of, you know, how to categorize the world into superior and inferior humans, right? There's also versions of it that are a little bit sort of less obviously uh, uh, problematic or less obviously shocking, um, where you might say, well, look, you know, women... Uh, are defined in part by the kind of ways in which they're used by society. And so all women have something in common. This is something that is important in the tradition of standpoint epistemology that I talk about in the book as well and critique in the book. You know, all women in, 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 in certain kinds of societies are going to have the expectation that they're going to become mothers or that they're involved in child rearing or caregiving in some kind of way. And so there's some essential experience that they have in common, which non-women Uh, don't share, right? So that's a kind of essentialist account. And then the non-essentialist account, the the, the critique of it, starting with Foucault and and other postmodernists, is to say, uh, no, actually, these are sort of simplistic categories where we superimpose on people, right? That's why Foucault is even skeptical of the idea of a homosexual. Like, sure, you know, you can somehow define sexuality by whether or not you engage in sexual acts with someone of the same gender. But that you know, it conceals as much as it 
uh, reveals. Um, and 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 by the way, in previous periods of history, people thought about this differently, right? So what you were defined by in ancient Greek was not whether you had sex with men as a man, but rather whether you were sort of uh, top or bottom effectively. And, and so they had very different ways of thinking about this. And so when you naively think this is the one natural category, you sort of force people to identify as something which may not reflect in an adequately rich way their, uh, you know, internal experience. Um, it boxes and so, them into it. And locks, boxes them into it, yeah. Um, which is precisely one of the reasons why I think that the whole way we are thinking about identity today is a, not just a, a political trap, but a personal trap as well. It promises you a form of true recognition in society and true respect in society while, while not in fact uh, delivering it. Because to have that, you have to be seen as an individual, not just as, as a product of the intersection of your identities. But, but to go back to, to, to someone like Spivak, she says, all right, look, all of that is true, right? Broadly speaking, Spivak buys this. She's deeply steeped in these postmodern ideas. But politically, this is a disaster because you do want women to be able to go and stand up and fight for their rights. And you do want people in India to go and be able to uh, you know, rebel against a global economic system that is supposedly keeping them poor or whatever, right? And again, there's something sort of really um, intuitive to that thought. And so she says, look, even as we retain this awareness that at some philosophical level, essentialism is wrong, we sort of have to act as though that truth weren't there in certain kinds of political context in order, you know, if you are treated as though you were essentially a member of a group and that's why you experience advantages, then it's good for you to become aware of that and lean into that consciousness in order to fight back against it. There's a very interesting example of, of that that she gives at the time. And it's interesting because it shows you some of the pitfalls potentially of, uh, of essentialism. Which she says, look, take women, right? Women aren't just their genitals, but that's how society sees us. So for political purposes, let's lean into it. I'm going to define a woman as somebody who has a clitoris. Now, today, that sounds like a very provocative statement that many people would disagree with. But that, you know, precisely you might think is part of a problem of essentialism, that, um, that, that, that in order to have these clean categories, you always have to simplify in ways that, that might actually exclude people that, don't want to be, uh, that want to be a part of that category or that includes people who want to be excluded from that category. Um, and that's going to be true, you know, basically across the range of socially significant groups, including such things as do we think of you as black? Do we think of you as Jewish? Do we think of you, um, you know, as this or that, as a homosexual and so on? I, I I just want to criticize that the um or I, not necessarily criticize but point out that even to accept that Spivak's argument makes intuitive sense requires granting some fundamental criticism of liberalism. In order for this to make intuitive sense to me you, to you, you need to buy into the idea that individualism is politically isolating. That individualism means that you are, or either by design, or by nefarious power design, or by effect, turns people into political monads that can't coordinate in order to challenge the status quo, and that this is why individualism is just a tool of status quoism, which is Enlightenment, white, European status quoism, and. I think, I think that's a big assumption. It has a Manichean element that thinks that either identity groups are full-on 
essentialist associations not and can't be voluntary and can't be soft affinities, but they have to be something deeply um, in your something that you, you, you associate with your blood, with your phenotypes, with your with your core core identity, not just something that you can voluntarily opt into or they don't exist at all. That's my problem. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think, I, I think that there's a middle path that liberals can recognize, which is why I don't describe myself as an opponent of identity politics. I, I, I oppose a lot of the forms that identity politics has today, but I recognize some legitimate forms of identity politics, right? I mean, the most trivial example, uh, I mean, its influence is sometimes not positive, but something like the American Association of Retired People, AIP, RP, has a lot of political influence. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, you know, there's particular kinds of interests that elderly people have or retired people have, and, you know, we're going to, to, to organize and fight for those interests. In the same way, you know, I think that certainly a recognition of the history of the United States and the ongoing existence of certain forms of discrimination makes it perfectly understandable and legible that, uh, you know, even very individualistic uh, black Americans will say, well, we have to have some awareness of, 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 of what it means in the society to be black and some self-identification as black. Perhaps we want a society, and that's only one option, where this stuff matters so little that we're not even going to think of ourselves as black anymore in you know, however many generations. Um, but you know, to, to fight the kind of injustice that we encounter, we do have to have an awareness that that's how we're treated. And even a sort of scrupulously liberal thinker about identity like... Uh, 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 like Kwame Anthony Appiah, um, thinks of identity as being in part sort of self-defined, but in part defined by the assumptions that people make about you and the kind of you know n- norms they they, they 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 impose on you from the outside. So I don't think there's anything you know to, to speak in a more personal way. Having grown up, having grown up Jewish in Germany, I think part of my you know I, I don't come from a religious family. Um, I don't go to synagogue. I, I don't really partake in religious rituals. But part of what made me a Jew is that I was seen as a Jew, right? That if I mentioned certain facts about myself, that in people, you know, made people treat me as a Jew. And so I think, you know, to say, hey, there may not really be uh, an essentialist account of what all of these identity groups are, and we should be somewhat careful about them. But um, for certain political purposes, it's important that people recognize that that's how they're treated at and that explains the situation they're in and therefore they should organize to fight back against them. That's plausible. The question is, what kind of society do you then want to aim for, right? And there perhaps we get to the next step in the in the argument. Which, right, right. Yeah. And I, I just I want to stick on this just for another second because I just think that that account as you just given it, that's not new. You did not need postmodernism to get there. That was embedded in... You've just shifted from the, the birth of liberalism was in, in response to religious war, but people's association with religion at the time was was identity based. It was not um, just an I, 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 I'm, I select uh, my faith from a menu of, of, of available options. It was I'm born Catholic or I'm born Protestant and therefore I'm going to kill anybody who is not part of my affinity group. It was the same type of identity politics. That's why I always um, I don't know, wince a little when I, I back in 2018 um, uh, 
uh, Ezra Klein ha- would argue that the criticism of identity politics is unfair because all politics is identity politics. Well, broadly defined, yes, that's true, because all politics is a politics of affinities and, and group and coalitions. And, and often you select your coalition not just based on Marxist economic power associations, but also because of what wh- who you were born to and what how your view how your group is viewed in the rest of the world. All that is true. But what Spivak was doing was taking it a step further because she had deep skepticism of the ability uh, of, uh, of liberal individualism to create meaningful political associations um, based on an identity that is not indelible. And that's my problem. That fact, like something like Catholicism is, is delible in the sense that, sure, you're born a Catholic and that's part of your identity, but theoretically you can disassociate yourself if somebody tells you to convert. But blackness you can't eradicate or, um, or womanhood you can't really um, eradicate because society will always see you as the, the person with the clitoris. So, um, so I very much agree with the, the larger analytical point you're making. And a lot of the project of this book is to point out that you can take in injustice based on things like race very seriously and you can fight passionately to remedy those kinds of injustices without falling into the identity trap, without embracing the core ideas of the identity synthesis as we constitute today. And that in fact... Um, you know, universal values and neutral rules have often inspired the most powerful inspiration, motivation for those things. That, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement pointed out that the check that, Amer- that African-Americans had been written uh, by the Bank of Justice, you know, was, was, was invalid. But he didn't say, rip up that check, as other theorists like Derek Bell basically said. He said, we are going to demand that this check be honored. Right. Um, and, and, and so I agree with you profoundly that liberalism has always had the resources and r- continues to have the resources to allow groups that are discriminated against to make those demands. And that even though we're far from perfection, we've made tremendous progress in that direction exactly for that reason. And I agree with you that the thinkers I'm thinking through in the first part of this book as, uh, they disagree with me on that. That's why they've always been enemies of liberalism, because they think that liberalism does not do that. Uh, sufficiently. Just on Spivak herself, because I do want to be fair to these thinkers, I think she's a little bit yeah. more ambivalent than than than, than you allow. Right. I think the way in which people today use strategic essentialism, sometimes naming the term, sometimes without naming the term, is Manichaean in that kind of way. It's like, of course, race is a social construct, but everything is determined by race, right? People like Ibram X. Kendi or Robin DiAngelo, who really are Manichaeans in that way, right? I mean, DiAngelo says that anytime a white person drops a black person, they're bringing the entire apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. Well, you know, that tells me that D'Angelo has never had a black friend because part of being friends, part of having a podcast like this, that we interrupt each other all the damn time, right? Because that's actually sometimes because we disagree with each other, sometimes because we're, we're affirming each other, right? And there you get into these deeply Manichaean uh, ideas. Spivak herself uh, sort of retracted the idea of strategic essentialism later in part because she yeah. grew to be nervous about Narendra Modi and the kind of Hindutva movement in, in, in her country of birth. And in part because of her criticisms of, of how this plays out at American universities. Right, no, um, I, I totally acknowledge and I just want to just clear my point about Spivak was not actually criticism of Spivak herself because I, I, I and I actually find a lot of her writing fantastic. Um, some of it hard to read. But the uh, my point was that to 
into to to say what you started by saying that um, there is something in, that intuitively makes sense about her argument. I said for this intuition to work, you need to have uh, to uh, uh, to take as a starting point some fundamental skepticism of the power of associations in a liberal society. That was my point. So, so one thing I I was thinking about as as you two were going back and forth on kind of the more I guess liberal friendly version of identity politics versus the the liberal perverted version um i think this it's i'm thinking about the the conversation we had with jamie adam do you remember when he he brought up um abortion and he said you know this is a women's rights issue i'm never going to be pregnant adam is never going to be pregnant this is for women to talk about and i have to admit that i i just i felt very uncomfortable about that idea because I, I actually believe that more men should be talking about abortion. I think I happen to be incredibly fortunate that I've never had to have an abortion, but I would wager a guess that a few men have been partnered with people who have and have a lot to say on this topic. And I would love it if men were more involved in that conversation. Um, and I feel like that's that's this is one of the ways that I think identity politics, even in a very kind of old school liberal civil rights way kind of it still falls into the same traps where it's like it's trying to encompass and exclude in the wrong ways if that makes sense and I want to get your thoughts on that uh, I, I I love Jamie by the way he's he's a friend and and, and really thoughtful I think I, I think on this sort of you know perhaps Jamie and I don't know how sincere he was being and, and and perhaps a little bit in his sort of position as a as a gay guy is sort of you know half sincerely half jokingly sort of embracing a form of standpoint theory that he's in general quite skeptical of right from the perspective of liberal political philosophy um, you know it's a set of rules a set of standards about how we should act uh, in society and, and, and uh, among many other things. And one of those is that we should allow people to make uh, their own decisions in their own personal sphere, that you get to decide what to say and not to say and uh, which God to worship and whether to worship at all and who to you know, have sex with and who to be partnered with and all of those kinds of things. Um, one thing that neither liberalism nor any other philosophy can uh, answer in a general abstract way is where are the boundaries of that moral community, right? Who's included in that moral community and who's not, you know? Um, is an animal included in that kind of moral community? Um, is, you know, to what extent are people who live beyond your own borders included in the basic forms of solidarity that you maintain within a liberal democracy? Um, or in this case, um, you know, what is the moral status of a fetus? And so I, I guess I would disagree with Jamie because I actually think that that is, um, you know, a substantive philosophical moral question. Um, you know, from what moment on does unborn life count as having significant rights that are worthy of protection as a society. Now, in my mind, it is uh, implausible to say that that's true five days in. It's also implausible to say that that uh, isn't true, you know, uh, 10 minutes before giving birth, right? And so, so where does that line lie and how do you then trade off between the profound interests that women have in control over their reproductive rights and their own bodies 
but also the kind of moral obligations we do potentially have towards unborn life at the later stages of gestation, I think that's just a profound, significant moral question that you're never going to be able to sort of swipe away with, uh, you know, any kind of political principle. And I think that therefore is a question which I as a man am implicated um, uh, as well as women. Um, uh, Now, I understand that women have, you know, certain kinds of experiences that give them certain forms of insight into this question that I don't have, and I certainly feel a responsibility to listen to them and their kind of claims in in a serious way. Um, but but I guess on this point, I would disagree with Jamie, that that's, that's just something for women to talk about and decide. Um, I don't think that's true. And maybe one of the things, interestingly, uh, on the empirical level in the United States is that we tend to think of public opinion as being really uh, polarized on gender lines on this issue. But that is not the case. Actually, men and women tend to have very, very similar views on this. It is sometimes, an, you know, on the, in, in the progressive end, but also actually on the conservative end, it, 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 it is something where perhaps women give a higher priority to the issue, they're more exercised by the issue for obvious, understandable reasons. But the distribution of views is not particularly polarized on gender lines uh, about this topic in the United States, which is sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. And to be fair to Jamie, I don't think he was saying that, you know, men can't partake in conversation. I th- <laughs> Jamie would never want to censor anyone from speaking on any topic. That's definitely not his bag. But I think he was saying that this is a women's rights issue. And if we don't consider it a women's rights issue, we're essentially kind of erasing a lot of what women have fought for, um, if I'm hopefully encapsulating his argument well. So I just wanted to clarify that, you know, it, that that's where the, the distinction lied, like a politi- well, so when it comes to political action. And perhaps that's just, I mean, the way that I would frame that is that, you know, one of the parts of a trade-off which makes this so difficult is that, uh, I mean, you know, clearly you look at a seven-month-old fetus and and some serious interest must be paid to to the interest of, 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 of that living being. I mean, especially this is a point that, that should be obvious to, 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 to people who are deeply progressive who are very worried about... Um, uh, you know, drinking, I mean, some of them, right, if you're vegan, about drinking milk that was produced by, uh, you know, a living animal. Um, and then you look at a seven-month-old fetus and say, there's no interest there at all. That strikes me as, as as really quite peculiar and hard to reconcile. But then on the other side of that is the profound interest in in human freedom and and, and, and having control of, 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 of your own fate and uh, of your reproductive rights. And that obviously is something where then there's a question about, do you describe that as being the interest of women or in the context of questions about trans stuff, uh, do you sort of erase that? And I assume that Jamie in part was exercised by saying, no, 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 the way to understand that countervailing interest here is about the interest of women. Yeah. That is the natural way of talking about that. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. Okay, well, to be continued. Yes, to be continued. We'll have a whole other episode coming out soon as the second parter of this identity politics conversation. And if you're not already subscribed, please subscribe to uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts and share us with your friends and enemies. If you really want to support us, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or some schmeckles on the Substack. Until next time, stay sane.